Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Another Page One podcast. I'm Mark Woods, and today I have Andrew Pantazzi. And I think it should probably be a podcast about podcasts because Andrew may be our uh, podcast aficionado. But I guess we can save that for another time. Another time. <laughs> um, today we're talking about if you saw Sunday's paper, it filled several pages in Sunday's paper, something Andrew's been working on a long time with uh, uh, reporters at the Sarasota Herald Tribune. Um, try and sum it up but i'll let you tell more investigation into the power of prosecutors um a higher percentage of black defendants receiving more severe sentences than white defendants for the same drug crimes basically asking the question why is it the influence of the judges the state attorney the sheriff's office or is is it the prosecutor um so yeah i guess what tell me what led to this story and what what it's about Yeah, so my beat at the paper is the state attorney's office. Um, So I don't cover courts in a traditional way where I'm going to trials necessarily. Um, It's more trying to think of the state attorney's office as a policy-making government organization. And back in last summer, I had heard a rumor that there were some reporters from the Sarasota Herald Tribune in Jacksonville who were asking about a particular prosecutor, Christine Bustamante, So I requested all the records that they had received from the state attorney's office. Um, It was every drug case that had been uh, uh, prosecuted in 2015 and 2016. And from there, I called them and tried to figure out what they were working on and if we could do this as a partnership. Um, Since then, that was uh, July of last year. um, And now we're in June of the following year, which gives an idea of just how backbreaking this work was. Uh, what we did was we opened every drug conviction from 2015 and 2016 for the most active prosecutors in Duval County, 23 prosecutors. Uh, initially, it was 25, and then we whittled it down to 23. And we created our own database that tracks about 30 different variables. In this database, we were trying to see, just like you said, what the impacts are on the criminal justice system. So if we can narrow the cases and only look at, say, the plea deals that are negotiated by prosecutors where no guns are present, it's only drug possession cases, the sentencing points are within similar ranges, do we still see disparities? And what we saw was no matter what adjustments we made, we still saw that disparities existed. We did see that everything has an impact. Everything that you traditionally think of as as impacting sentencing does, Uh, if a gun is present, um, if it's a possession versus sale versus trafficking, if there's a resisting arrest charge, each of these things have minor impacts, but no one thing attributes uh, or accounts for all of the disparities. Um, And just to go back, I mean, we, we know that there are disparities. You can look at the prison system. There's kind of two ways of looking at this story. You can look at the input and you can look at the output. Mm-hmm. Um, the input would be the sentencing that is happening, and the output would be looking at who is in prison. So in prison, about half of the people are black men. 
um, who make up about 8% of the Florida population, yet they make up about 50% of the prison population. And they are, um, uh, they make up especially an even larger percent when it comes to drug sales and drug possession. So the question is why? Um, what accounts for the admission disparity and what accounts for the sentencing disparity? And when we looked at these, we were able to, to see some of the, the things that happen. Um, there's one case in particular that we wrote about, Bobby Dunbar. He was arrested for the most minor infraction in Florida, uh, Florida's felony code. It's called sale of counterfeit drug. It was a fake drug. Uh, he also had a sale of cocaine. And he had sale of counterfeit drugs. The sale of cocaine charge was dropped. And they took the sale of counterfeit, and this prosecutor, Christine Bustamante, uh, got two and a half years in a plea deal with him. The reason for that was, in the past, he had served two years in prison. And her rationale was, if you've served two years in the past, why should we give you any less now? Even though you're going in for a much hmm. less serious mm -hmm. crime. Hmm. So we tried to, to be able to fully account for each of the, the factors and say, what is the role of prosecutors and what is the role of judges? Um, uh, a lot of people have pointed the finger at prosecutors, saying that prosecutors are the ones who are most powerful. And I personally would agree with that. I, I do think prosecutors are the most powerful actors in the criminal justice system, more powerful than the police, more powerful than the judges, um, more powerful than the defense attorney you have. What matters the most is which prosecutor who is prosecuting you. And that's what judges have argued when, mm -hmm. when this has been raised in the past, that there's discrepancies. They say, well, it's more... They've pointed a finger at prosecutors, basically, right? Yes. Um, and so we were trying to test that hypothesis, see, can we isolate? And we do see that when judges, judges matter too. Um, judges make a difference on what your sentence is going to be. Um, the racial disparities are different from judge to judge, but um, it's even more significant who your prosecutor is. Probably should have backtracked to why Duval County. You've got Sarasota up here in Duval County. Explain why that would be. So there, before we created our own database, there are administrative databases out there that track um, the court system. Um, they, are, um, they have their own issues, these databases, and everywhere else in Florida, they don't give you defendant name. In Duval, they do, and they give you prosecutor name, and they give you judge name. So it was more easy in Jacksonville to be able to look at the administrative database and figure out which prosecutors were the ones that were most active. Um, we didn't rely on that database at all for any um, actual analysis. The only database we use for our analysis is the one that we created, and we've put that database online. And we're encouraging academics to look at the database that we created and to use it for studies. Um, we rigorously checked it. Um, so, so we took that administrative database. We, we figured out who the prosecutors were. We created our own database. Um, and one of the things I did is I came in and I audited the data. So mm -hmm. I took 10%, looked at it, and said, is this accurate? We you know, corrected any errors, did it again, kept doing it again, until we were sure that this database is, is impenetrable. It is completely accurate. Uh, we recognized that we are humans entering data, and so we wanted to make sure that it was um, as perfect as possible. And so that meant, um, uh, again, we started this in July of last year, and it's just now publishing, and, and part of the reason is we spent a lot of time checking and rechecking and fixing any errors and making sure that everything is right. Um, there were also different times that we realized we weren't tracking a variable we needed to. At one point, we were looking only if it was a plea deal or it went to trial, and we didn't realize some plea deals are pleaded up to a judge and the judge decides the sentence, and some plea deals are negotiated by a prosecutor, 
and the judge only signs off on it, doesn't mm-hmm. have any say. Um, and we wanted to account for that. And this, the story, reading it, it starts with Christine Bustamante, the former prosecutor, and uh, her background alone is very interesting. Daughter of Brazilian immigrants, grew up in New York City, taught students with disabilities, volunteered at homeless shelters. Um, so I, I, it was very interesting to read about her. Tell, tell me about her. Tell me about what you found out about her. Yeah, so we had this database, and we wanted to write about the database in a way that would be interesting to readers, and so we decided to do a case study of the prosecutor with the highest disparities. And what you might expect is that the prosecutor with the highest disparities would be someone who is um, you know, maybe older, um, maybe just really harsh, um, and um, uh, comes from maybe a, a, a segregated background. Um, but that's not what we found. Um, what we found was it was Christine Bustamante, who at the time was 34 years old. Um, she did come from uh, uh, New York City, and though she was the daughter of two doctors, um, her parents sent her to public school um, at uh, a school where eight out of ten kids were poor, um, and about as many were also um, minorities. She was the daughter, as you said, of Brazilian immigrants, and. When she moved to Jacksonville, she lived downtown, um, and this was at a time before people were living downtown. Um, so this is not the type of person you expect, um, and nothing from our reporting indicated that she had any racial animus at all. Um, instead, what we found was she was someone uh, uh, who, according to her family and according to people we talked to, really aimed to please. Um, she really aimed to follow authority and do what she was told to do. And so I think when she had cases that were complex, like Bobby Dunbar, who has a past conviction and a past sentence, uh, that's two years, she's thinking, my bosses say that we should go harsher the second time, so I'm going to go harsher. Um, And other prosecutors who we examined weren't quite like that. They exercised more discretion. They showed more mercy. Um, They were able to see that the rule that was set from the administration, from, say, State Attorney Angela Corey, may say do this but Mm -hmm. that's not just in this case so i'm going to do this instead um we didn't see that as much with with christine what what it seemed like was she was more um going by the book which led to these disparities right a young young prosecutor yeah i did find that part um nothing's simple in a big huge story like this from the data to to the people and you're right Mm -hmm. if, if you were drawing a caricature of what you thought this person might be, it would not be this background. So I found that that yeah. really an interesting part of the story. Um, and and I, I should also say we, she, she's a uh, she appears to be a very private person. Um, I interviewed her in August of last year, and it was a two and a half hour interview. And I counted the minutes. Um, she spoke for less than ten minutes in a two and a half hour interview. It was her plus um, uh, the higher ups in the office. And they answered almost all the questions because she would kind of defer to them, Hmm. um, which I thought was also pretty telling. Um, And then the day or two days after that, I flew up to New York to where her family lives um, to try to interview people who went to school with her. And while I was up there, five days after I interviewed her, she resigned from Hmm. her job as a prosecutor. She now works in civil law, um, uh, helping uh, with uh, estates um, at a... Uh, private law firm. Hmm. Um, so you tried to, going back to the original question you're trying to answer, you tried to an- analyze the influence of judges, state attorney, police, um, in 
take out each of those factors. Mm-hmm. What, explain, try and describe that, what, what the influence of judges are, the state attorney and police. Yeah, so um, again, we used Christine in the story as the case study, and we looked at the two judges that she appeared in front of. Um, one is Mark Holsey, who eventually resigned from the bench after he was accused of explicit racism and sexism. Um, he said that blacks need to go back to Africa, allegedly, and he also used um, very inappropriate, profane language to refer to a female staff attorney who worked for the court. Um, when she was in front of him, she had disparities. Uh, she had the highest disparities of any of the prosecutors who appeared before him. Um, but her cases were almost always negotiated by her. Um, they were uh, rarely pled up to the judge, um, which again indicates that she's the one who, who has the authority over what the sentence is going to be. All he's doing is signing off on it. Then she appeared in front of Judge Russell Healy. He's the head of the felony bench, um, and he has a reputation of being very strict. Um, he also has a reputation of being a, a harsher sentencer. Um, I've been in his court before. Um, he um, uh, has at times been chided by the appellate courts for making rash decisions in court. He um, once uh, lectured a defendant who had been convicted of rape um, saying that he was not a good Catholic fellow because he had committed adultery. Hmm. Um, another time, he, uh, uh, according to an appellate judge, an appellate judge wrote that he went on a tirade um, against the Department of Corrections for um, not charging a fee to a defendant who he thought should have been charged a fee. Um, and there are several other cases like that where he, he is known for, for having kind of an imposing presence in the courtroom. Um, and so we were somewhat curious what effect would that have on her. And what we saw is she had a lot less negotiated pleas. A lot more often defendants uh, were pleading up to uh, Judge Healy. Um, it went from being almost every case to now about half the cases were pleaded to the judge and half were pleaded to her. Um, and we don't know exactly why. We do know, though, in those cases where uh, the judge was deciding the sentence, she actually was asking for harsher sentences than even the judge was. Hmm. Um, so again, we, we can't get into her mind. We can't know exactly why that was, whether there's part of a, you're influenced by who you're around. Her first ever boss, when she started as a young prosecutor, said that he emphasizes to prosecutors not to let judges affect your, uh, your discretion, that if something is the right decision, you should offer it no matter who the judge is. Um, then he said, however, I don't think that always kicked in. I think that prosecutors do conform to the courtroom that they're in front of. Um, and that may be why, when she was in front of Judge Healy, she was particularly harsh toward black defendants. Um, in front of Judge Healy, her disparities increased even more. And I should say that the disparities overall for her were that black defendants received almost four times as long of sentences as white defendants. And for black men, it was even worse. It was uh, more than six times as long as white men. Hmm. Um, uh, the disparities, and this was true for all prosecutors, were, were always worse for male defendants. So that's the judges. So the state attorney was another piece mm-hmm. to the puzzle. And going back to previous state attorney, Angela Corey. Yeah, so this was uh, the time period we looked at, 2015 and 2016, was under state attorney, state attorney Angela Corey. And she had a reputation that um, was well-deserved and that she, she would um, appreciate as well for being one of the toughest state attorneys in the country. She was very uh, traditional, tough on crime. Um, and she viewed drugs um, uh, partly as a way to get to guns and partly as a way to uh, be proactive. In the world of law enforcement, most law enforcement is reactive. You are responding to a crime that has occurred 
after the fact and punishing someone for it. With drug enforcement, it's different. You're proactive. You're looking for people, um, trying to arrest them, um, and sometimes you're trying to get them to commit crimes to arrest them, uh, uh, as with buy-bust operations, where you go up to someone, uh, you offer them uh, 20 bucks if they can get you a drug, and then when they give it to you, you arrest them. Uh, for her, I think she viewed this as a key way to fight violence in Jacksonville, that if you are harsh on drugs, then you will help reduce crime. Um, what we saw is um, uh, uh, not that that was effective. Uh, Jacksonville still leads the, the state in murders. Um, however, uh, there were a lot of rumors we heard, including from Christine's first boss, um, as well as from defense attorneys um, repeatedly, that drug sale cases required 13 months in prison, um, which is the minimum to, to get a prison sentence. Uh, when we actually looked it up, prosecutors rarely did that. It was about 40% of the time that they gave 13 months for a drug sale case, or at least 13 months. But for Christine, it was about 60% of the time. So again, this was an example where she was more likely to follow the rules, maybe more likely to say, all right, this is what my boss tells me to do, I'm gonna do it. Um, in the words of one judge, Judge Weatherby, um, a former prosecutor himself and a former felony judge, he said a lot of times when you become a prosecutor, there are rules that are wink, wink, nudge, nudge, here's the rule, and you know it's not really a rule that you have the discretion to do what you think is right. But other prosecutors don't know where the line is. And when they hear there's a rule, they think they have to follow it every single time. Hmm. Um, and again, that may be part of what was driving these disparities, that um, there was a, a difference in the defendants who are coming in. Um, uh, already the defendants coming in, uh, black defendants being more likely to have a drug sale. And so she's going to be harsher toward them than to the white defendants. Um, but we saw even when you limit it just to possession cases, if you get rid of drug sale and trafficking cases, actually her disparities get worse. Um, so it still didn't fully explain it. It might account for some of it, but the question is why her and why not any other prosecutor? Why did she top the list? Um, I think part of it was, again, uh, maybe aiming to please, and part of it maybe was following the rules um, uh, a little too closely instead of exercising discretion. And then the other piece to the puzzle, um, police. That was, mm -hmm. you tried to fact, figure in how that might factor in. Yeah, so one of the ways we looked at this was traffic stops. Um, when you were arrested, was it based off a traffic stop um, or was it based off something like a buy-bust operation? And so if we remove traffic stops from her cases, which we see that black defendants are far more likely than white defendants to, to have their cases come in through a traffic stop, um, but even if you eliminate all those cases and you say, I just wanna look at cases that were not based on traffic stops, um, her disparities are unaffected. So it may affect the admissions. So it may affect um, how many people are being arrested and how many people are being sentenced, but it doesn't explain why the sentences are higher. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so the bottom line, when you go through all these different pieces, um, what did all this work and all these statistics and all these months, what did, what did it tell you? What did it tell us? So, so trust me, I would have loved if after um, <laughs> Uh, 11 months of this, um, uh, I could have a smoking gun and say the cause of racial disparities is X. Um, but what we found in the way we closed our story is we said it's complicated. Um, these things are not simple. Um, it is the prosecutors. It is the police. It's the defendants themselves um, coming in with more serious criminal histories or more serious crimes. Um, it's everything added together. Um, uh, uh, all contributes. Um, I do think the prosecutors play um, the most significant role, 
but they are not the only role. Um, mm -hmm. And it would be wrong to say that this was just um, Christine Bustamante. Um, it was everything combined together. Right. Yeah, there was a quote I really liked uh, from Wellington Barlow, retired defense attorney in Jacksonville. Um, it's not that people are intentionally discriminatory. They're just not fairly discriminating mercy. I mean, I thought... Fairly distributing. Distributing mercy. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was uh, summed it up probably pretty nicely. Yeah, the, there was another example we looked at in this story. There was a nurse um, uh, who had a, a promising career, uh, went to Columbia um, Ivy League School in New York, and she was caught with drugs um, uh, that she was, uh, I believe, stealing from the hospital. And uh, I think that... Um, Christine and the the police and the people around were able to see in her that this was a mistake that this was someone who was driven by addiction but but could be um, redeemed um, that same chance at redemption I think is not seen for someone like Bobby Dunbar where they say you've been in prison three or four times already um, you've already had your chance now we're gonna we're gonna use the hammer um, even for something as small as as selling fake drugs um, I think that that's, that's very true, what A. Wellington Barlow said, Al Barlow, that um, we don't give mercy the same. And, and the answer is not um, necessarily we need more mandatory minimums, um, which we, we tested that as well. Mandatory minimums don't uh, reduce disparities. Hmm. Um, uh, the, uh, the answer is not that we need to be equally harsh to everyone, but rather maybe equally merciful. Hmm. Very interesting. Um, any interesting reactions to the story since it's been out? Um, so far, uh, no one has disputed uh, the uh, data in the story. Um, the state attorney's office did want to make clear that um, they were, um, uh, I think they wanted to contest any characterization that they um, distanced themselves from Christine, um, mm -hmm. that they, they took the story seriously. They met with us twice. They went through the cases rigorously, um, and they made themselves very open and available to us, which we greatly appreciated. Um, so far, I've heard from defense attorneys um, who were uh, thrilled with the story. Um, there was one defense attorney who told me he was a little concerned that the response by prosecutors is going to be to use the hammer against everyone. Hmm. Um, if you look at the list of prosecutors by disparity, the one who has the lowest disparity does happen to be someone who is, um, uh, Lauren Weish is her name, and she is very harsh toward everyone, um, white and black defendants. Um, but if you look at the person right next to her at number two with about equal disparity, it's uh, someone who is very uh, lenient toward hmm. everyone. Um, so the idea is uh, uh, disparity does not just mean be equally harsh. It can also mean be equally merciful. Hmm. Yeah, very interesting. Um, well, if you haven't read the story, it's still up on Jacksonville.com with a nice presentation. Mm -hmm. And so thanks. Yeah, Jacksonville.com slash influence. Great, great. And we'll, come, we'll have Andrew back for another podcast about podcasts sometime and we can just get into that topic and or, or or we can do a podcast about the the world cup and yeah, you know yeah. uh, 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 vamos mexico and <laughs> yes. el tree yes we watched the mexico game on uh with andrew's two boys which that was as entertaining almost <laughs> as the game <laughs> all right well thank you mark i really appreciate you talking to me and thank you for reading the story yep very good thanks andrew Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, 
human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.